Hello, listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the evening of Wednesday, the 30th of March. Uh, I'm here in Seoul, and I'm joined via Zoom from cold and windy New England by Professor Brandon Gaucher. He, uh, we will be talking about his newly released book, Before Evil, Young Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Mao, and Kim. Before we get started, I'd like to remind all of you, please, to leave a review and a rating about this podcast wherever you can. Spotify, you can't leave a review, but you can leave a rating. Uh, and other platforms like uh, Apple Podcasts, you can leave both. And on YouTube, if you're listening on YouTube, please click a link, like and subscribe and leave a, uh, a little comment there. Uh, you might be wondering why I always ask you to do this. And it's so that people can discover our podcast more easily. And we want our audience to grow over time. Uh, secondly, do check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. It is more affordable than you think. Thirdly, follow me on Twitter at JackoZ, that's J-A-C-C-O-Z-E-D if you're American, or Z-E-D if you're not. And you can also find us at nknews.org, it's one word on the Twitter. For podcast suggestions and feedback, you can tweet at us or you can email at podcast at nknews.org. Okay, so my guest today is Brandon K. Gaucher, who completed his doctorate in modern history at Fordham University in New York City in 2016. He is the Director of Global Education at the Derryfield School and an adjunct professor of history for Fordham University. He used to contribute articles to NK News about the history of North Korea. I think you'll find that he speaks passionately as well as loudly, so it'll be a, a good uh, compliment to myself. You'll find him on Twitter at BK underscore G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R. Professor Gaucher, welcome on the podcast. Jaco, thank you so much for having me on. It's my pleasure. When did you finish your manuscript for this book? Well, thank you for that question. Uh, I finished the manuscript roughly a year and a half ago and then went through a process of revisions mm. uh, where I, uh, the book itself is focused on the, the youths, the early years of these heinous despots in which I focus. And um, when I finished the manuscript, it was a, a book about their childhood, their upbringing, their early years. Yeah. And as I you know, completed that manuscript and was speaking with publishers, one, one comment that came up was, uh, do you make the assumption that too many readers know uh, in great depth about the story of Kim Il-sung's time in power mm. or you know, the history of, of Mao Zedong's time in power. So I actually went back after I'd finished the manuscript and added a third part, which was oh. adding another third of the book on, uh, focusing uh, and with, with painful cogency, if you will, yeah. aspirationally at least, uh, to describe the career of, of Kim Il-sung or Stalin or Hitler in power, career, quote unquote. Uh, and to do that in a way that leaves readers informed about crimes against humanity that had un unfolded uh, under the rule of those individuals. And by doing so, the book opens up with each dictator at the very end of their lives, mm -hmm. taking stock, if you will, of their larger experiences and describes their time in power before the second and third part of the book go back into a discussion of their earliest years and their right. foremost important formative events in their upbringings. So you uh, you finished the the, uh, the original manuscript well before the war on Ukraine started about a month ago. If you were starting to write this book now, would you add another name to that list of uh, of six dictators? <laughs> well, the, the, there has been a similar question that has been asked to me before the war in Ukraine. If there was another person who I, I would include with mm. uh, the, these six dictators, and um, no, I I, I certainly. Uh, at this point, I, I do wish I could have included Vladimir Putin, but I, I think that would make for a, a lovely sequel and follow up about contemporary uh, despots, the new authoritarians, if you will, who are in mm. power right now throughout the world. But uh, later on, perhaps if we have time, we can touch on, I think, some important parallels between the life and childhood of someone like Vladimir Putin uh, mm. and the dictators on which I, I focus. There are, uh, in terms of the core argument of the book about the power of education and, uh, and a certain degree of privilege growing up opposed to trauma creating these men, that applies very much to Vladimir Putin. Hmm. So what led you to, uh, to begin this work? How did this all begin for you? I mean, I know you've, uh, you've written for, as I said at the beginning, you've written for NK News before, so you obviously had an interest in, in Kim Il-sung, but how did this, uh, this whole work begin? Hmm. Uh, to give a short answer to that question, for me, as a historian, this goes back to Madeleine Albright, who mm. just recently passed away, former yeah. Secretary of State, you know, visiting Pyongyang and meeting Kim Jong-il. 
And me uh, as, uh, you know, watching that and, and wondering what would it be like to sit down uh, and have these extensive conversations with Kim Jong-il and me as a young person watching that, that really piqued my imagination uh, and had me thinking about uh, as much as we study North Korea's economy, as much as we go into depth about the larger history, right, of the Korean War and so on and everything that unfolds after that. What was Kim Jong-il like as a person? And my fascination doubled when uh, I saw a televised interview with Secretary of State Albright. And when she was asked, you know, what was Kim Jong-il like? You spent mm. a good amount of time with him. And she said, you know, I had been briefed uh, before I, I went to North Korea and I was told to kind of expect potentially anything from Kim Jong-il, that he might be really weird. He might be mm. really bizarre. Uh, he might try to make me feel uncomfortable. And uh, then she paused and she says, uh, but... I, uh, I found him charming, you know, to paraphrase. I, I, I yeah. liked him. And, and she went on to describe him as coming across as very intelligent, very much in command of the facts uh, in their working meetings, right, where he had a lot of advisors around him, but he was very much able to speak on his own, uh, I think, uh, without having to rely overwhelmingly on notes or let people speak for him. Mm-hmm. And so she was struck by that. And there's kind of a, there's a contradiction there. There's something that doesn't quite fit right. Because the caricature and stereotype of the crazy North Korean dictator, uh, and, and by the way, she is a caveat, says, I, I know what horrible things this person had done. Yeah. I, I know this is a bad guy, right, who's guilty of um, immense human suffering. That's, that's on him. Uh, but that, that really struck me. How is it that someone who we see through a certain light on, on camera could be mm. quite much more nuanced and, 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 and complex? So throughout the process of my graduate work, I ultimately wrote a dissertation, my doctoral dissertation on the history of U.S.-North Korean relations. And what that focused on was an effort to understand how Americans have imagined and thought about North Korea alongside the actual facts of what's unfolded in the U.S.-North Korean relationship. And uh, as much as we think about you know, North Korea through the lens of you know, the axis of evil, if you will, from George W. Bush, uh, you know, our terrorist league of evil, as Reagan mm-hmm. de- described it in the 1980s. What are the ways that we fundamentally misunderstand North Korea, even as we're frank about the ways that North Korea is moral- morally abhorrent? And so the dissertation in that regard was the foundation for this project to look at these dictators, uh, very, very bad people, but through a humanizing light and to consider what we can gain from that. Before I speak about this notion of the humanizing light, just to mention about the dissertation that I wrote, kind of a, a central takeaway was that the United States and the American popular media as a whole have never really understood North Korea as a product of Korean history, that we've so often repeatedly viewed North Korea through the lens of the Cold War or the the War on Terror. And this is a fundamental mistake, one that we can help begin to diminish by looking at Kim Il-sung's youth, as we can talk about later. Uh, and, and that this has been a, a major issue alongside the inclination of Americans to come up with caricatures of the North Korean leadership as being crazy, of having no explicable goals. And the dissertation focused on that history, which then leads me to Before Evil, my new book. Before Evil is an effort to examine these individuals, not only at the height of their power, at the very end of their lives, but the story of their youths. And the question is, Jacko, and the question for listeners is this, should we humanize the inhumane? Should we go above and beyond to humanize Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-il, Kim Il-sung? And if so, why? I want to hold that thought for a moment there, Brandon, and, and, and ask you, uh, you did, your, your book covers six now dead world leaders. Uh, how many pages are there in your book? Yeah, so it comes out to 454 uh, and roughly 300 pages uh, within 300 pages of text, then about 150 pages of (laughs) endnotes. This is a work that attempts to marry the scholarly with the popular, to make history, substantive history, accessible, to be able to have a work that scholars and historians will find satisfying in terms of the use of primary and secondary sources being carefully documented. Mm. But a work, as I think all scholars should strive for, that should be meaningful to people of all backgrounds because the core message, this one mm-hmm. about the humanity of the inhumane, it matters for the here and now. And uh, I think how we talk about Kim Jong-un as well as his father and grandfather matters tremendously for how we can think about more complex issues related uh, to North Korea and its very unfortunate history. But how do you do justice to any one of the six men when you're trying to deal with them all in one book? 
<laughs> I appreciate that question very much. I think that the idea of focusing on these six men mm. is not to offer this A to Z biography, right? That's going to be 10,000 pages long. Yeah. Because if you look at the historiography of, of, of works about Adolf Hitler, mm. uh, go to Dartmouth Stacks is where I did a lot of, uh, a lot of research, right? Doing, spent a, long time, a lot of time at Dartmouth. I mean, the number of biography is endless. Yeah. We are in a field awash with scholarly encyclopedic brilliance. Mm. So as you begin this project, you have to ask yourself, you know, the, the core purpose. And the core purpose is not to provide an A to Z biography. It is instead to examine what the historiography has missed. Mm. What has been the larger gap in our discussion of these men? Mm -hmm. And that larger gap that this book addresses through the discussion of these six dictators lives is as follows over and over and over there has been the assumption popularly and to an extent within the scholarship particularly before recent decades that these men were you know going to somehow be a product of, of trauma right mm. uh that that you look at someone like stalin or hitler and they had bad abusive fathers the the inclination of scholars for a time and now within a, a popular context that surely it's trauma that informs and creates these these evil men and when i say evil i mean individuals who act without empathy right doesn't mean they're not capable of empathy in some respects but as a whole over and over let's pinpoint that for a moment yeah because your your book uh, title obviously is is before evil so um you're, you're dealing with the young uh, lenin the young hitler the young stalin etc uh, and that uh, of course assumes that you believe all of them to have been evil at a later point in life now you're a, a historian first, not a polemicist or a writer for the Daily Mail. So then the question, what does it mean to call someone evil? And, and you've just sort of summarized it in a nutshell that you said that it's too, wait, so if you could say that once more, to do something without conscience, is that right? Or do something without empathy, sorry, to act without empathy. To, to make decisions in mm. a way that is increasingly devoid of empathy. Mm. And this itself, if we think about evil as less of something that someone is just born as, right? And, and by saying that, I don't mean to diminish the, the, the psychopathological realities of sadistic behavior, right? Uh, that, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a different uh, psycho-historical discussion. What I mean to say is that rather than viewing someone like Kimmel, Songer, Stalin, or Hitler as being these demonic creatures mm. who are incapable of any human feeling and empathy, that that is... It, extremely reductive and problematic, even if we view them as being evil. So then what does it mean for them to be evil? Mm. It means for Mao Zedong at the height of the Great Leap Forward in, 19, in 1960 to continue that campaign, even as he's being informed that it is causing mass suffering. And, and we know, look at evil in that regard is not as Mao Zedong saying, uh, I, you know, I, I want people to starve to death, you know, that I want people to suffer. There, there's no uh, historical record of Mao being happy or mm. joyful about the fact that the fact that people are suffering. Uh, to the contrary, even as he's extraordinarily cold-hearted about it, um, you see a leader who has its ends justifies the means logic that this is something that must be done. And right. yes, this is upsetting. This is disturbing. But there's this larger ideological end, and and this is the story of the book in itself. When we talk about the meaning of evil, evil also often is the product of ideological radicalism that not only these men embrace, but that we ourselves are susceptible to if we go down a road of growing righteous dogmatism. Mm -hmm. When we begin to believe, I have this set of ideas, this ideological lens through which I view the world, and this is something that must be achieved, right? Mm -hmm. This is something we must do. And the lines of evil, quote unquote, are much messier than we realize. What is the line, Jacko, between an awful person doing something heinous, yeah. knowing it is wrong, and an awful person doing something heinous, believing it is utterly just? At what point? Can we ourselves and others around us become the villains? Maybe not on a Mao-like level, right? I don't mean to imply there's you know, a Stalin within all of us, but uh, we are a species susceptible to ideological fanaticism and acts of cruelty that can amount to evil. And since we're on uh, defining terms, could you also help us to understand uh, what is a, a dictator and is there a, a substantive difference between being a dictator and being an authoritarian leader? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, I, I think as we get into defining the notion of dictatorship and authoritarian rule, that can be slippery. And, and here's what I mean by that. At the most basic level, right, we can define the notion of a dictatorship, an autocrat 
who is now going to be a strong man, who is going to essentially make the rules up as they go. The rule of law is not something that is going to circumscribe or, or change their actions. The strong man, the dictator, is going to behave in a way that fulfills his ideological vision of what must be. I say that is slippery because there are a lot of reasons why. If we look at Ruth Ben-Ghiat's uh, The New Strongman, a, a book that came out just in the last year and a half, she talks about the notion of the new authoritarians. And so when we think about dictatorship, mm. we can think about it in a classic Cold War sense of Joseph Stalin having total power to do as he pleases, meaning you know, he just has to pick up the phone and, and you can disappear. And But then she in that book talks about a new authoritarian, someone like Vladimir Putin. She also lumps in uh, Trump and Berlusconi, which I think is an interesting mm. uh, and ultimately debatable discussion to be had, right? But someone like Muammar Gaddafi. And she looks at the new authoritarian uh, as being someone who doesn't necessarily have to be as overtly extreme in their use of dictatorial powers, mm -hmm. someone who can manipulate the media in a way that maybe comes across as less crass or obvious. And those are slippery Line. So at the most basic level, though, uh, the dictators I have chosen in this regard are some of the most out and out obvious ones, right? Or earlier, you asked a question about, you know, how do you do these six men together? Mm. Uh, and, and I, I want to just speak to one more thing about that. So if one sense, this is a story of their childhoods, which is not necessarily about trauma uh, and about having abusive fathers, though, for, you know, Stalin and Hitler, that's there, but it's about certain privileges and education. That, that's a really important point I want to emphasize. All six of these men and the utility of including all of them in this one book is to emphasize these parallels. And a really important parallel in the stories of these young men is that they have educational advantages, which others don't. And mm. I would like to remind listeners that the individuals who seized power in the Soviet Union in October 1917 were not illiterate cobblers, but ideological fanatics who were highly read. Uh, and in and, and, and many ways, someone like Vladimir Lenin overseeing that coup d'etat, uh, brilliant. Of course, yeah. Well, and now that's, uh, before I get into the specifics, they're still on the, the philosophical questions here. Uh, whether inadvertently or not, the topic of your book seems to lend weight to great man notions of historical development. Uh, was it your intention in writing the book to pass judgment on the structure versus agency debate? Yeah, I, I appreciate that very much. I think an important caveat is to note that this book is, is not an effort to diminish or reject the importance of macroeconomic or larger structural factors that are extremely important in terms of the ultimate outcome of history. There is no questioning the importance of that. But, but it is instead to look at the ways uh, that individuals have had a profound impact, indisputably so. And by doing so, right, when we look at these six dictators in one volume, it is also me weighing in on the historiography. Self-conviction, the so what of personal meaning, that these are six men who came to believe profoundly and their notion of their own self-conceived heroism, that they had something great to do. Events could have unfolded differently, would Vladimir Lenin have seized power in the Soviet Union without the First World War, without the incompetence of uh, Tsar Nicholas II, without Rasputin, and on and on and on and on? Uh, I am not engaging in those uh, any such counterfactual discussion. Mm -hmm. I am actually doing something quite different. I am purposefully zooming in in what is a micro history. If readers are interested in examining the larger historical macro variables that intersect with Stalin's life, uh, Stephen Kotkin's works on Stalin, uh, this three-part biography, two parts mm -hmm. have come out, the third will be coming out soon, is extraordinary in that. Uh, and, and that is the, the Mozart of that approach. Uh, to speak colloquially, I, I would describe my approach as something more akin to uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson uh, playing a one-string guitar with a broken bottle for slide, a history that seeks to bring these men's lives into in being in front of you. Something that's going to make you feel their humanity for a larger purpose. And in engaging this discussion of relationships, of before and after moments for their specific lives with this number of dictators in one volume, mm. the, the purpose isn't that larger discussion. Uh, I will tell you this, though, uh, when I talked about self-conviction, the so what of personal meaning, I think that needs to be seen more as a historical variable in its own right. Mm. Uh, even Vladimir Lenin and the Bolshevik Revolution, historians widely recognized, despite all of the factors that made the moments of October 1917 possible, the Bolsheviks ultimately seized power in large part because Vladimir Lenin 
browbeats and bullies the rest of the Bolshevik party into accepting the necessity of a coup. And the question remains, how does Vladimir Lenin view the world in that regard? What makes this a make or break moment for him ideologically? And how does he conceive of himself in that moment? I would say here that as we examine their lives, uh, mm. this is no mitigation of their guilt. Um, it only heightens their culpability by reminding us that they became who they became, not in spite of their humanity, but because of it, their own agency. And by agency, I mean their own decision-making process. How do they view themselves in the world? It drives their embrace of murderous belief systems. They, they swim in this expansive ocean, pushed and pulled by currents beyond their control. They're struggling in one direction or another, beginning with their youths. It blurs the boundaries of any one choice amid a progression of evolving structural conditions, but their individual choices mattered and made the fundamental difference in the immense suffering they would cause. Straight line paths to breathless inhumanity are not inevitable. And I will say it again, events could have unfolded differently. The story of their lives and their own individuality is a, an essential part of that puzzle. Mm. Well, let's talk a bit more about uh, how your book helps us to humanize inhumane leaders and, and why that's important or valuable to us to understand that even inhumane people are human. Yeah, I end the introduction uh, with a line, which I think is sure to make some people frustrated. <laughs> uh, the ending of the introduction of the book of Before Evil is that this is a story about us. And I don't think people want to view the history of Stalin or Mussolini as a story about something that we can relate to. And, and I view this as a problem in the historiography. Um, Peter Longerich's history of uh, Hitler and the Third Reich mm. is an extraordinary work. Uh, right. I have immense respect uh, for the scholarly expertise, uh, a work that's a product of decades of research. And, uh, and I, 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 get, I sign it to students, right? I have the greatest respect for it. But when I put down Longerich's uh, book, I, I, I don't feel any commonality mm. uh, with someone like Adolf Hitler. And, and why would you want to? Yeah. Who wants to begin a discussion about Kim Il-sung with? What, what, what is the meaning of the human condition? And how does this bind us together? This is a major problem with how we look at these dictators. Now, serious scholars aren't demonized. No, Stephen Hawkins not demonizing Stalin, meaning that uh, as much as he condemns everything that Stalin does that is so atrocious, he begins his biographies of Stalin talking about he, him as a human being, right? So scholars aren't necessarily going down this road of the caricature, at least in recent decades anyway. Uh, but, but what you do see is, I think, uh, a failure to try to connect their human reality with their own for any larger purpose. Now, let me speak to that more specifically about what that means, uh, which is the larger meaning of these despots' lives is not about only someone who became bound up with ideological radicalism, but someone who has an early life, which reflects so much that we have in common, the stories of early relationships, the stories of arguing with dad, uh, the stories of loving mom, the daydreams about what could be, and perhaps the most standout parallel that I see, a love of books, a love mm. of novels, a love of Victor Hugo. <laughs> I mean, there is this really common parallel in terms of them being bibliophiles. Kim Il-sung to a lesser, lesser extent. Right, because he, uh, as I recall, he dropped out of school at the age of 13 and then made that long trek to Manchuria. And then when he did go back to school, it was, I think, a Chinese language school. So he kind of had a bit of a a truncated uh, education yeah. development, didn't he? Yeah, but not before he comes under the, 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 the stewardship of a uh, Chinese teacher who will be a, a historian in China, Shang Yua, who will also be a, a member of the CCP. Um, and when he is actually at that second school, you know, when he is in Jilin uh, and he is studying under Shang Yua, he has a teacher, right, who begins to you know, have him read Dream of the Red Chamber. He reads Gorky's Mother. Um, and so I think this is really, really interesting. And what do I mean by that is you have a moment uh, for Kim Il-sung as a young person, right? He is not an evil despot when he is a teenager. Mm. He is a product of foreign imperialism and a number of variables, which I think compel a degree of empathy for the condition that a young person found themselves in, despite any decision making of their own. At that school, he learns Mandarin, which is absolutely absolutely indispensable for his survival of the guerrilla struggle in the, in, in the 1930s. But Shang Yua, this teacher who enables him to begin to dream, not just about you know, Marxism, 
but about the notion of a world in which he, his will would matter, a degree of empowerment. I mean, you know, it's so much about Kim Il-sung's background is fraught with mythology, right? Mm -hmm. And with the century being so full of historical falsehoods, um, Shang Yua is a rare example of someone who we can verify. Um, He writes in his own work in China uh, about Kim Il-sung as a young teenage student um, and actually um, says similar things as as Kim Il-sung. And then in one sense, obviously, right, that could be a, a feedback loop. But it remains fascinating that the the KCNA, the Korea Central News Agency, DPRK's you know news organization, mm-hmm. in recent years, as early as I think in 2016, still wrote about Shang Yua's kids coming to Pyongyang. Mm. I'm still talking about Kim Il Sung's time at this school. Kim Il Sung will speak about him in his memoirs, and it was an important relationship, one mirrored in the lives of other dictators that they had individuals and certain educational benefits that were really important so why mm-hmm. is this about us you know before we can go further into that you know because that was your question yeah. you know, what do we gain from humanizing them and uh, I, i'll repeat uh, psychopathological traits matter I, i'm not a psycho historian that is not the purpose of this i don't but i don't mean to diminish i don't mean to suggest that we're all the same you know that that everybody has the same predisposition to uh, behavior lacking empathy i don't mean to suggest that at all what, what I do mean to suggest, though, is that the story of the evil committed by these dictators is not one of just psychopathological issues, but it is a story about the power of ideas to compel otherwise, uh, in many ways, normal people who had upbringings that are very similar to many of our own to begin to undertake merciless actions, believing it is just. It is a story about us because the story of evil as behavior defined by a lack of empathy is so often one about a story of ideological conviction. Mm. That is the meaning of the humanity of the inhumane. And that is a dire warning about us today as we might begin to believe that something is utterly right. And there can be no neutrals. This is something that we must do. How do we guard against crossing those lines and becoming the villains without realizing it? You mentioned that many people have thought that there's some common elements of trauma or uh, or relationship to parents uh, in the uh, the background of some of the dictators that you write about, and I'm reminded of a uh, of a film that I only half recall from the 1960s or 70s when uh, a group of uh, of Nazis tried to recreate a new Hitler by having young children and putting them in similar. Uh, parental relationships where the, the father is uh, is absent from an early age and the mother is is sick and 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 this kind of thing. You recall the film I'm talking about? <laughs> no, but uh, it sounds extremely relevant, Jacko. Right, they're, they're, they're trying to to recreate a new Hitler by yeah, recreating as much as possible uh, that those childhood elements. And I guess what I'm leading to here is uh, with these things that that you point out that are common to all these dictators, can we extrapolate out from that and say? that most or all of these characteristics would be found in any hum- inhuman uh, world uh, yes. or national leader. And then, you know, <laughs> following on from that, does, does your model have any predictive power? Yes. Oh, I really, I really like that question. And I appreciate it very much because now I'm afraid I'm going to frustrate listeners, uh, not just by invoking the name of George Wilhelm Frederick Hegel and what is the, the unreadable tracks of his writing, But I think to offer one of the most cogent points that Hegel made that is so relevant to what you just asked. Mm. And it it, it is Hegel in his philosophy of history who said that the past, that history teaches that people and governments have never learned anything from history or acted on principles deduced from it, said, uh, paraphrased more simply, the only thing we learn from history is that we do not learn from history. Hegel Hegel wasn't being sarcastic. You know, there's the inclination to think, was this a throwback to the cliche that we're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past so we don't learn from history? That's that's not what he meant at all. Mm. Uh, What he means is the meaning of human experience and history itself, historical reality is one of endless complexity. And to put this in my own words, a wall of numbers constantly evolving, an algorithm that cannot be defined neatly, right? Something that is constantly shifting. As Henry Kissinger said at the beginning of the Nixon administration in 1969, we will not make the same old mistakes. 
we will make our own. Yeah. <laughs> so when you ask about any predictive model, no, um, there are certain parallels we see and those parallels are meaningful for our own lives on almost an effort to look inwards, right? The path to how evil unfolds, but the commonalities which we see in their lives, yes, are extraordinarily common. And the reality is that of kids who love Victor Hugo as Mussolini did, his father, uh, you know, led him to a poor poverty as a young man. His father was a socialist activist who, and he, they read Zola, they read a lot of Victor Hugo and Les Mis and so on. Look, if my uh, child falls in love with Victor Hugo growing up, odds are she's going to be an utterly normal person. Yeah. Uh, she's not, and also here's another crucial point. Um, if we look at trauma, even before we get back in education, there are many people who have troubled upbringings or suffer from childhood abuse who go on to be utterly decent, normal people, much less, you know, become megalomaniacal mass murderers. Mm. So there is something very problematic of the notion of, uh, and I say this in the introduction, we cannot look at the story of these lives and think we're going to come away with a, a certain equation about how evil comes to be. I say, quote, Youthful experiences cannot explain these despots' crimes, nor can anything in their childhoods diminish the horror of their actions and their personal responsibility for them. No new biography, not the following chapters in my book, Before Evil, can provide a certain formula for how such men come to be and how we might avoid them in the future. Apologies. Uh, and that, that may not be satisfying, but that's the reality. And it comes back to the question then of, well, then why do it? Yeah. What is the so what? And it is ultimately not only a story about you know, the warnings of how one embraces this path of ideological fanaticism, even if we're all human beings, right? Even if we're all the same. And, and by the way, when I say we're all the same, I don't mean to generalize. People are unique, right? We're all human beings. And the experience of being a human is different for everyone in many ways, right? But there are strong commonalities in terms of what it is to be a human being, to live, to be born, to grow up, to have parents, and to live, and ultimately to know that we will all die someday. These are commonalities that we all have to grapple with. And, and that is what I mean. So then what is the so what? Then why? Yeah, what this? is the so what? Yeah, well, there's a couple of reasons why. Well, well, well number one, um, by examining the humanity of these individuals, it's not only this larger warning about the meaning of evil. Um, it is to challenge their cults of personality. It is that uh, Stalin, uh, Hitler, Kim Il-sung, they did not want to be viewed as human beings in the sense of being ordinary. Every part of their propaganda is to build them up as this larger than life figure. By, by examining their human stories, we not only see uh, something of ourselves in their lives for that purpose I've been talking about, we ultimately reject their cults of personality. And more than that, to feel a degree of empathy before they were evil, to examine their human stories. This is not the height of complicity. Um, this is the antithesis of their tyranny. And to tell the human stories of tyrannical despots is a flesh and blood history that is the opposite of what these men wanted. Stalin, mm. man of steel, does not want a story about him sobbing over the loss of his first wife because he was a bad husband. Mussolini, for a time when he's in power, doesn't even allow photos of himself smiling. <laughs> mm. To tell the story of you know, Mussolini as a never-do-well uh, in, in the streets, right? Um, hungry for a future, but ultimately a rather unimpressive nobody. That is a richer history, one which historians have told but by bringing this together in a larger volume that is written in an accessible manner for the public, there is the effort to fill a gap in the historiography about how we think about these men, not only in a scholarly sense, but in a popular sense. And for this larger purpose of looking at commonalities in their lives, to dethrone their cult of personality, and to be what they were not ultimately in the end. Um, individuals who embrace love, mercy, empathy, even for those, especially for those who themselves might be undeserving of it. By the way, that film that I was talking about earlier, that was um, 1978. It's called The Boys from Brazil mm. uh, with uh, Gregory Peck and Laurence Olivier, in which uh, they try mm. to create, uh, no, they, they make 94 clones of Hitler using his DNA and try to raise him uh, in, in similar circumstances. Uh, so if, if you've got some sort of a backlog of old DVDs, perhaps you've borrowed Kim Jong-il's library. Uh, you'll find it in there, the, uh, the boys from Brazil. Uh, here's a, uh, a sort of a question, a hypothetical for you. Um, let's say that you meet 
a 15 year old person who um, seems to have all these traits and this background, the, the, the love of books, the uh, certain troubled relationship with the, uh, with the parents, the, the privileged education and a strong ideology. What would you do at that point to try to steer them away from a path towards, you know, uh, dictatorship and, and inhumanity to man and woman? Mm. I appreciate that. Uh, and by the way, you, you know that the, the rule of the White House press spokesperson, which I am most definitely not, but the rule of being a White House press spokesperson is to never answer a hypothetical. Yeah. If, you're ever, if you're ever asked to answer a hypothetical, you say, no, I, I'm not going to answer a hypothetical, but, I, but I'll be glad to. Uh, and oh, by the way, I would just like to note that the Gregory Peck film, uh, that, that will be uh, lovely watching for this Friday evening. I, I appreciate that recommendation. Excellent. But, but, in, in all seriousness, the question you just asked is a really important one because mm. I think it is one applicable to everybody listening to this, right? Because uh, we, you know, we all are involved in other people's lives, right? Either we have children or we, we see young people and we also look at ourselves in the mirror. And when we think about this, you know, perhaps said in terms of a cliche, you know, what type of world do we want to live in and, and what part do we and our loved ones and other people around us play? I think we have the moral obligation to think about what you just asked. Mm. Because again, the story over and over, uh, if we look at someone like Maximilian Robespierre, who's not in this book, is someone who had an utter belief that they were doing something that would make the world a better place. Yeah. Those lines are slippery. So, so you asked this question about how do we speak to young people um, especially those who might fall in love with the world of ideas. Um, and I'm uh, the last paragraph of the book speaks directly to this because mm. this question of you know lessons, I and kind of in a rather cheeky sense, you know, quoted Hegel you know, earlier about the notion of that we don't learn anything from history, but here's a, a lesson, quote unquote. And historians appropriately are very suspicious of lessons mm. because history does not unfold the same way over and over and over. Two plus two does not always equal four in a unique historical circumstance of myriad variables. But when we engage with young people, uh, here's what I would say, right? And here's what I try to say of the 15-year-olds as much as possible, that the, you know, the lesson, quote unquote, that we derive from the youths of these awful men uh, is recognizing that we ourselves can become the monsters we deplore as we make hard decisions in pursuit of what we believe is right grappling with infinite complexities and personal challenges that we can guard against that reality by embracing empathy, the guiding value, that guiding value can shield us from the blinding light we run towards in pursuit of far reaching ends that may seemingly compel us to undertake cold means. Reject the tuneful dogmatism of sirens who pull us towards disaster by ignoring or denying the humanity of others, including the heinous. Encourage new generations to think of their actions through the lens of suffering we cause or diminish for others. Distinguish yourself by striving to interpret the meaning of human experience, past and present, with compassion, even if it is often lacking before what Hegel called the slaughtering block of history. Courageous opposition is needed to confront tyranny over the ages, uh, but so too is love and mercy. The onus is on us. Mm. Look, looking at these, these six men in their youth, again, uh, Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Mao, and Kim Il-sung, is there any one of them, or, or perhaps even two, that you find seem to display more empathy than others in their early years, and therefore, the the slide into dictatorship and evil seems all the all the further, all you know, a, a bigger drop. Yeah, I know. So uh, before you know, I speak to that. I would say that there there are even moments once they are in power, right? Someone one of the least empathetic human beings of all time, someone like Adolf Hitler, mm. is kind to his secretaries. Traudel Junga, who will write. Um, you know, the, the, the last secretary of Hitler is a memoir and the movie Downfall about the mm. last days of Adolf Hitler is largely in part based on her memoir, even as she becomes more and more aware uh, or more cognizant of the height of her complicity in crimes against humanity by working for such a man. Um, even as she knows through and through how guilty she was of being associated with one of the most criminal regimes ever will say, I viewed him as a paternal figure. He was kind to me. He told me when I came to work for him that if any man was inappropriate towards me to come tell him immediately, 
and he would take care of it. Um, even someone like Joseph Stalin at the height of the purges, the great terror of 1937 mm. to 1938, um, he received a letter from his old history teacher from the Tbilisi Seminary. <laughs> That's like Joseph Jukishvili. And I'm, I don't believe he calls him by his, important, you know, by his real name in that regard. But essentially, yeah. you know, Joseph, I've I'm, I'm been arrested by the NKVD. Uh, I desperately need your help. And even Stalin at the at a time in which he is signing the death, li death list personally of tens of thousands of people. This is not even just about the ultimate 700,000 plus people who were murdered in the Great Terror, but he himself personally signs list of tens of thousands of names, takes out a sheet of paper and says that this old man uh, poses no threat uh, mm. to us. Let, let him go. Another time, by the way, he got uh, an old woman donated her cow. I think it was during the, the first five-year plan, right, to help, to help the party, to help the regime. And and Stalin, you know, took out a sheet of paper and essentially wrote her and said, you know, keep your cow, you know, don't worry about it. Be well, be healthy. There are moments of humanity, mm. even as they're overseeing crimes against humanity. Um, so your question, is there one dictator that stands out as more empathetic at a younger age than, than others? You see glimpses of it throughout all of, of their childhoods, right? For someone like Adolf Hitler, you know, he is close friends with someone named August uh, Gustav Kubasek, uh, who writes a book called The Young Hitler I Knew. Mm. Um, and, and in that work, right, um, he describes um, that even if this Hitler was vitriolic and just wanted to rant him a lot of the time and was a domineering friend, he cared about me. He knew that I was his only friend and he was invested in the relationship. Uh, for someone like Vladimir Lenin, uh, you see a, a close relationship uh, with his family. They all have really close relationships with their, their moms in particular, real loving relationships. Um, Vladimir Lenin, not so much just about empathy, right? But grows up in a, a home that is loving and full of these types of feelings. He grows up in a home with Christmas trees mm. uh, where they die Easter eggs. Mussolini as well, right? Looking at Mussolini's youth, we see someone who is, you know, a, a born demagogue. But from a, when I say born demagogue, meaning he is always someone who wants to, to speak and be recognized, right? He's arrogant from a very young age. But someone whose empathy, I think, for the poor, as his father, I, I speaks to him about the meaning of poverty and, and our obligation to address it, that, 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 that's genuine. So I wouldn't pick any one dictator uh, mm. as standing out as above and beyond empathetic. I would see, in many respects, ordinary young people who have moments in which they are callous and moments in which they are empathetic. But one of the scenes that stands out most, uh, that is maybe most surprising, is someone like Adolf Hitler taking care of his mother. She's dying of breast cancer. Yeah. And having the, the, the Austrian Jewish doctor, Edward Bloch, who takes care of them, Hitler uh, will sob and bawl you know, as his mom is dying and he will wait on her and take care of her. The doctor will say, no, I've never seen someone mourn like I saw, um, like as I saw Hitler mourn mm. his mother. And um, Hitler will go and bow to that Austrian Jewish doctor and say, I'll never forget what you've done for my mother to help her. And later on, that doctor will be allowed to leave Austria uh, after the Anschluss. Um, and that doctor from the safety of the United States will say, uh, I'm pretty sure that no other Jewish person in Austria was allowed um, the advantages to escape like I was. Um, mm. You know, a listener might say right now, appropriately, who cares that Adolf Hitler loved his mother before the specter of the Holocaust and the murder of six million Jewish men, women, and children? Uh, and, and that resonates. But why should we focus on the notion of, of Hitler and his uh, mother dying of breast cancer? Because we care so deeply about the immense suffering they cause. We have the obligation to engage the humanity, people who cause that suffering. Not because we're going to come away with a definitive uh, lesson for how we can avoid such people, mm. but because it creates a more nuanced, complicated of his understanding of history that is vital to what historians try to do, to make reality more explicable, even as we recognize uh, how mentally incapable we, capable we are of explaining everything definitively. Uh, with Kim Il-sung, though, in particular, you see not only a close relationship with his parents who die really young, but you see a close relationship that takes shape during the guerrilla struggle with, uh, you know, uh, Wei, Wei Jungmin, uh, this Chinese commander in Manchuria, uh, in which they will, will bond and have this really close relationship. There are moments of empathy and moments of com uh, camaraderie uh, that are real. That it's not only the story about crass, power-hungry dictators who are, who are eager to seize power from a young age. That's very simplistic. For someone like Kim Il-sung, you see a story from a young age, particularly in Manchuria, of, of courage, 
a story of serving a greater purpose that is not only about where it is going to take him. Um, and in seeing that story, we see reality. And then we begin to ask, where do individuals from Hitler to Stalin to Mao to Mussolini to Lenin to Kim, where do they begin to cross the line where that empathy becomes not a vital part of being a good person, but a defect in terms mm. of achieving a larger end for this supposed utopia, this larger essential end. Is there anything else that you learned about uh, Kim Il-sung specifically that sets him apart from the others? Mm. Well, I wouldn't say so much that that sets him apart, but I think what when we often think about Kim Il-sung, as you were noting that his education ended really early, you know, mm. he is not like Stalin in the sense that Stalin in the seminary in today's Tbilisi um, has something approaching a college level education um, that he is really well educated. So I, I think an essential thing to, to note about Kim Il-sung is that education was really important for him and particularly in the sense of learning Mandarin that in the CCP's purge, you know, with uh, of Korean communists in the 1930s, the Ming Sang incident, Ming Sang Don incident, he would not have survived that if he had not actually been absolutely fluent in Mandarin. So that that was a really, really important thing uh, for Kim Il Sung's life. Um, and also, when we look at Kim Il Sung's story, his stands out in particular in the sense that he is someone who is engaged in combat in a way that is distinct from the other people in the story. You know, someone like uh, Joseph Stalin is, you know, a, a revolutionary gangster, mm. but it is in particular Kim Il-sung who is so involved at a very, very young age in such, such intense armed struggle. Someone like Kim Il-sung had every reason to think, not only when he survives or something like the, the Min Sang Don incident, um, but to believe that he would be dead. <laughs> Just yeah. participate in the struggle against the Japanese. He had every reason to believe that he was not going to survive that. And here's a question for you, Jacko. Should we talk about Kim Il-sung not only as being the ultimate uh, you know, forefather of this, um, this tyrannical regime, which has caused so much suffering for such a great people, you know, the Korean people, North and South, but should we examine his story uh, of the guerrilla struggle, not in the, through the lens of North Korea's mythology, but one at one point, which was in a sense admirable, someone who is willing to fight and potentially likely die for his country. And if we do so, can, how do we do that with respect for the, for the crimes that he would later commit, you know, for the road he would go, town, go down? So for Kim Il-sung, his story particularly stands out in that regard. If someone, um, as much as any of these dictators or more, who really believed in the necessity of liberating his homeland and embraced communism, uh, began to embrace communism, not because he wanted to be an authoritarian dictator, but because he thought that would be an, the way to modernize Korea very quickly, that he believed it would serve the Korean people. I think that's something we need to accept as genuine, especially in the early days of the struggle. You've talked before uh, in this interview about the power of, of belief and the power of an ideology that you know, a dictator often believes that they're doing something that will somehow make the world, or at least their own country, their, their own people, uh, a better place. And I wonder, are there, looking at these six men, are there any of them that were a bit more, shall we say, wishy-washy on the ideology? Or were they all, <laughs> did they all have such a strong conviction of beliefs? Or were, were any of them opportunists? Yeah, well, I think that the intersection of being a crass opportunist, right, of the notion of power for serving ones and becomes a mm. part of, of, of all of their stories. Lenin may be the least. I think Lenin might be the most ideological, diehard, mm. true believer. Uh, but there is this other really uncomfortable intersection that uh, the, the true belief is real ideologically. People like Stalin, historically, the historiography before, especially the 90s, looks at Stalin as you know, being this power-hungry dictator. He was a power-hungry dictator, mm. but he was also a true believer in communism. He was a fanatical communist. That was real. Uh, but if you know you look at someone like Mussolini in particular, mm. my goodness, he is a diehard socialist who suddenly during World War I uh, becomes uh, what will be a fascist, invents a new ideology. And, and, yeah. and, 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 but I don't think that we should view Mussolini's breakup with socialism during the First World War, which for listeners, that was because Mussolini was for Italian intervention ultimately in the, the First World War. Um, as a diehard nationalist, he ultimately breaks up with socialism. You know, that's not only about the notion of Mussolini pursuing power for himself. 
Um, <laughs> the fact there's no reason to believe that Mussolini in the middle of the First World War would go on to actually be a dictator ruling over all of Italy. But unquestionably, there is a slippery moment in their quote unquote careers where the notion of power for themselves and the notion of power for a larger ideological end begins to go hand in hand. And, and I think we can understand North Korean uh, dictators through that, that same lens for Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un. Obviously, the decision making of Kim Jong-un is closely intertwined with his own security mm. and his own power and his own kleptocratic wealth. Right. There's no questioning that he is making decisions that are very closely tied to his own security and his own power and his own well-being. But whether we're talking about Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-un, I think it is reductive to not take into consideration an ideological vision, which cannot be reduced solely to the notion of what is going to benefit me, mm. that these individuals um, sleep well at night, perhaps. Uh, and I'm making an assumption there that Kim Jong-un sleeps well at night, but I think it's a reasonable assumption. Not only because you know they uh, are comfortable in their own tyranny and, and and their own lavish palaces, but because we look at the world through a given lens, an ideological vision in which we don't see ourselves as the despot, <laughs> we yeah. don't see ourselves as the tyrant. And I imagine for Kim Jong Un that the larger utility of North Korean history of um, journalists today taking the time to go read about the guerrilla struggle of Kim Il Sung, not through the North Korean lens, but through something like Dae Suk Sa's books on North Korea and Kim Il Sung, his biography. Uh, what we see is this notion of the guerrilla struggle, uh, which historians like you know, Adrian Buzo have talked about. Mm. And we see someone like Kim Jong Un today. I think the safer assumption is not only to view him as a kleptocratic dictator. But someone who views himself as upholding, um, you know, uh, a Korean vision of modernity that is devoid of foreign imperialism, that whatever North Korea's immense problems, and to the extent that he is deeply aware of them, and the immense complexity of reforming North Korea, that he has this obligation passed down through the generations to realize this larger, prosperous, independent Korea, uh, to whatever extent that is, um, let's speak, to whatever extent that might be hollow from some people's perspectives. I think we should be careful and not taking seriously the power of ideas as dictators imagine them and how they view themselves in that light. Horrible crimes. Go ahead, go ahead. Are men who are, well, are people who are dictators in adulthood also generally charismatic or magnetic as children? Because hmm. you mentioned, for example, I'm just thinking you mentioned that that Hitler really only had one friend when he was young, but Mussolini was a bit of a <laughs> sort of a street fighter, kind of a local tough, and he had a bit. He always wanted to be a, a talker, an orator. So, what what can we see in, in common with all of these here? Yeah, the line between say being a, a natural born orator doesn't necessarily play out across all of their all of their early lives. So, for mm. instance, if we look at someone like Mao and Stalin, they're not good orators. Mao is not a particularly impressive orator. Neither mm. is Stalin. Lenin so-so. I mean, Lenin is, is an orator, right? But he's not a phenomenal speaker. Mussolini and Hitler are, are you know, uh, profoundly impactful speakers, right? right? In terms of being able to move audiences, in terms of demagoguery. Um, what you see, I think, as a whole throughout the course of their childhoods um, and their upbringing are people who are deeply engaged with, with books. But for Kim Il-sung as a young person, right? That's not necessarily the case until he begins to go to school. He's not growing up in a privileged home with books everywhere, right? I mean, this is a family that's a product of Japanese imperialism, they have to move yeah. to Manchuria. So I don't, I don't mean to generalize there, but he ultimately does fall in love with books um, to a certain extent within school. What you see, and this is maybe bringing us back to what we were saying before, in many respects are ordinary kids who aren't that terribly impressive. Lennon's a straight A student. He's hmm. a brilliant, brilliant young person, You know, finishes first in his school like his older brother. But what you really see across their lives are individuals who, like so many of us, so many of us are grappling for meaning, um, or are grappling for for ideas to begin to make sense of the world around us, and you don't see any particular characteristics in them as young people that definitively suggest they're going to go on to be dictators who commit crimes against humanity. I know that's not a very satisfying answer. I, um, I wish I had a more satisfying answer. Yeah. That that being said, for for Hitler, yeah. I mean, his, his need to uh, deluge uh, a listener with uh, you know, this endless number of words and Vienna speaking at great length and no one caring because you're not a particularly impressive person. Yeah. Hitler in school, 
um, the teacher is being frustrated with him because he's not terribly impressive and he doesn't work very hard in mm. school. Uh, for Mussolini, a cousin of Mussolini will, will say of him, um, as I mentioned earlier, he was, he was always arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> but no, there, there is no one defining trait of their youths um, aside from the broadly stated points of a degree of privilege and advantage and the, and the power of education that suggest who these men are going to be. Uh, but the, the self-conviction, the search for the ideological path, that takes root through books and the notion of the self-fulfilling prophecy of the hero, particularly for Mao, who's reading books like Water Margin, Chinese classics about you know, the heroic guerrilla struggle, that's really important. But no, if you look at Mao's childhood, you look at his time in school, um, you see someone who doesn't want to work on his dad's farm, <laughs> who's, mm. reading a lot, who's spending a lot of time reading. Goofing off. Why does it seem that all, all these dictators that you've got in your book, they're men? Are there any women dictators that you can think of? Mm-hmm. Well, I think in the context of looking at the you know, very you know, worst dictators of the 20th century, sure. um, that's why these men stand out. Um, I would emphasize right, that the core things I'm talking about are obviously applicable to everyone of all background. And I think I, the reason why I, I, you know, we can't think of this moment of a dictator that has at you know, the heights of power of someone like Lenin and Mao is a product mm. of the patriarchal um, sexist nature mm. of unfortunately stated human reality um, that has played out up to this point. Uh, so I would frame that as no, at this point, we're not, we're not speaking of a female Hitler, um, but not because that men and women aren't susceptible to the type of ideological radicalism, but because that is the misogynistic nature of reality, which we, we have seen play out. Um, but if we begin to look at someone like Lenin's wife, Krupskaya, um, you see from Nadia Krupskaya within the Bolshevik Revolution, someone who is side by side with Vladimir Lenin, mm. someone who is all in. Um, so a, a, as we look towards the future and hopefully a future that does so much more to create gender equity, does so much more to help create opportunities for women to be in power alongside men. The central takeaways are more important than ever. Uh, it is not people with horns who commit crimes against humanity. It is flesh and blood human beings who think what they're doing is right. There you go. And perhaps a hundred years from now, uh, another young historian will be uh, talking about his his new book or her new book, uh, Before Evil, uh, with six uh, women dictators. Let's uh, let's hope. Let's who we, um who we haven't heard hope. of yet. <laughs> Let's um let's hope for uh, a future, right? And as I said earlier about what I would say to a young person, we not only have to combat tyranny, uh, we not only have to stand up to what we think is wrong, and sometimes that requires force, uh, you know, a, a strong conviction, right? That yeah. sometimes cooperation is not possible. Sometimes it requires um, force to fight something like Nazi Germany. Yeah. Uh, but day to day, how we live our lives, empathy, compassion, love mercy. And, you know, as we think about something like North Korea today, what I would say to listeners, uh, and, and, and I think, you know, listeners, which are very in tune with, you know, the, the meaning of life in North Korea to the extent that we can be right, who are informed listeners. I, I think we have such a, an obligation to view the North Korean people as human beings, to empathize with their plight, um, and to feel for the North Korean people. And even as we think about someone like Kim Jong-un, to take his humanity seriously, even mm. as we have no uh, illusions about the crimes of his regime. Um, I, I feel that so strongly when we speak about North Korea, the humanity of the people there. Um, and when I, I went to North Korea in 2015 and had the opportunity to engage with North Koreans, it was um, you know, after you know, going to the Palace of the Sun and seeing uh, the bodies of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il and having someone ask me, you know, what did you think about that? And I, and I said, it was interesting. The most satisfying conversation was to talk about the fact his wife was pregnant um, and mm. to talk about how excited he was to be a father and to have the moments of um, connection, even as we wrestle with the, you know, the meaning of complicity or re- we wrestle with how do we be frank and direct about what we find morally heinous mm. while engaging human beings. Well, that is a, uh, an excellent place for us to end our conversation today. I want to thank you once again, Brandon Gaucher, for coming on the NK News podcast. I, I really appreciate it. If listeners would like to learn more about my book, they can go to beforeevil.com. And through beforeevil.com, 
Uh, the release date is specifically April 26th. Right now, you can order signed copies through a link on beforeevil.com. And for a certain limited number of those uh, copies, I'll be writing uh, personalized messages, uh, including some historical quotes. So if you would like uh, something that would be particularly interesting, go to beforeevil.com. Jacko, I, I have such respect for what NK News does. I really cut my teeth as a, as a writer writing for NK News. That's right. Uh, Our listeners can find yeah. some of your archive stories back between 2012 and 2014. I think it was a, you wrote weekly pieces for uh, NK News. So they're still on the uh, on the website. People can go there and, and, and look for that. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can also find Brandon at Twitter at uh, BK underscore G-A-U-T-H-I-E-R, Gaucher. And of course, you'll find his book from April the 20. Six, April Six, 26. At all good book purveyors or online right now at beforeevil.com. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access or a free trial membership by writing an email to membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time. Mm -hmm.